Good afternoon. Thanks for joining me here today. This is Greg Lois, and we're talking about fraud in New Jersey workers' compensation cases. All right, thanks for joining us. This is going to be one of my favorite topics and uh, one of my favorite presentations that we're going to be doing. Um, so let's dive in. Okay, this presentation is going to cover uh, the fraud provision that's in the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. And, you know, a lot of people don't even know this, uh, that the New Jersey's Workers' Compensation Act contains a provision for fraud. And this provision is relatively new, and it was first uh, passed into law in 1998. And the reason I say that is because when you start looking for fraud cases in New Jersey, meaning case law, you'll discover there isn't a heck of a lot of case law. In fact, there's only about five or six reported decisions on workers' compensation fraud in that uh, subsequent 24 years. And again, it's because this provision is relatively new in the law. My goal today is to talk about practical applications of the New Jersey Fraud Act. And I'm gonna to try to apply this to cases. And because of that, I'm only gonna be looking at petitioner fraud. So there are provisions in the law that address employer fraud, or particularly uh, premium fraud, employer uh, misclassification, et cetera. But I'm gonna skip that and really try to talk about uh, providing you with a practical framework for applying the statute and raising fraud in your current New Jersey workers' compensation cases. Now, I'm not gonna read the whole statute to you. You can see it on your screen, it's quite long. But it's section 57.4 of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act. And it, has this statement in there that if the person is purposely or knowingly makes when making a claim a false or misleading statement any kind of representation or submission that could be fraud and the workers compensation judge has the power to order immediate termination or denial of benefits with respect to that claim so this of course makes us have to look into the statute and sort of define what does purposely and knowingly mean and it's not defined in section 57.4. So in other words, the fraud uh, as, uh, act says uh, purposely knowingly, but doesn't define it. And instead it uses the same definition that's found in the criminal code. So the criminal code defines purposely as a person acts purposely with respect to the nature of his conduct. If his conscious object is to engage in conduct of that nature or to cause that result. In other words, a person acts purposely with respect to some circumstance. If, if he's aware of the existence of such circumstance and he's trying to uh, cause something to happen, right? So uh, the, the statute also says with purpose also means designed or with designed or any equivalent term, right? So that's what purposely means. They have to try to do something. Knowingly means that with respect to the nature of their conduct, they were aware that that conduct uh, would have a high probability of impacting or changing something. Uh, it is th that there of awareness that something is practically certain to occur, knowing with knowledge or equivalent terms have the same meaning. So putting this together, our burden is when we're raising fraud in a New Jersey workers' compensation case, we have to show that the injured worker acted purposely or knowingly in giving or withholding information with the intent that he or she received benefits, that the worker knew that that statement was material to obtaining the benefit, and the statement or omission was made for the purpose of falsely obtaining a benefit to which they were not truly entitled. Okay, and those that definition and that discussion comes from the case of Bellini 
Bellino, excuse me, versus Verizon Wireless. And again, there's only five or six reported decisions ever in all time about fraud, and that's one of them. And it gives us this sort of very good understanding of what we, as the employer or carrier, has to demonstrate. So how do we do it? How do we prove this? How do we meet this burden of proof? And the answer is that we need to show some proof that the petitioner either got the benefit, which is typically money, but can also be medical treatment, or tried to obtain that benefit, again, which could be money or medical treatment. We need to show that they knew that they were misleading someone. That could be the treating doctor, our IME doctor, the employer, a court, or anybody else that has any sort of influence over the case. And we have to show that they did that uh, in a knowing way, that they knew that that conduct was misleading, lying, or concealing, and that they would obtain additional benefits. So those are the things that we need to demonstrate in court. So let's talk about some exact examples and how we would apply this in cases that we're currently defending. Here's a great one. Petitioner files a false claim. You know, it happens more often than people realize where the claim is just completely not founded in any fact. The types of claims that I'm talking about are these typical unwitnessed losses or the loss that occurs on the employer's premises in the one location that the employee knows that the employer does not have uh, concealment, uh, I'm sorry, does not have surveillance or uh, have any loss prevention technology in place. So the purely false claim. What we do when we have a case that we believe is based on purely false claim, not work-related, didn't happen, completely made up, is we file our answer, because you have to file an answer even to a false claim, and assert uh, an affirmative defense in the pleading. And the affirmative defense that we'll insert is there on my slide, quote, respondent asserts that the petitioner has made a false or misleading submission concerning any fact material to the claim for the purpose of wrongfully obtaining benefits and requests that the matter be listed for a hearing consistent with New Jersey statutes annotated 34-15-57.4 and that the judge dismiss this action and or make an order of restitution for benefits that we've already paid. So that's what we would do to bring this to the court's attention. Now, most of the time when you file an answer like that um, and assert fraud as part of your answer, it's not gonna be reacted to automatically by the courts. So even though we assert fraud in our answer, we're still going to have to go before the court and make a full proffer of proof. And typically this will take place by way of a motion proceeding. Um, generally speaking, I will file a motion demanding that the court dismiss the action based on fraud that will generally result in either a judge uh, making a decision on the record, which would be the proofs that we submit. Uh, typically, that would be my uh, attorney certification and any proofs that I'm able to disclose and or the judge would have a hearing. Uh, generally speaking, a court will not decide a fraud on the papers because it could result in a misdemeanor criminal charge against the claimant and also could result in the claimant having to provide restitution. That means pay us back for any benefits that we've already issued. And so generally speaking, the judge will uh, call that case into court and require testimony from the claimant before that decision is made. All right, how about the next type of fraud? Concealing facts, concealing particularly material fact from their own treating physician. And I think this is a much more common fraud. Uh, the action that we're reacting to is the claimant concealing or hiding the fact that they had, generally speaking, either a pre-existing condition and sometimes a subsequent condition. Uh, this could also occur in the context 
you know, the most common context I would tell you is the claimant had a pre-existing condition to the exact same body part, and then they go to the treating physician or the IME physician and deny or conceal that they had that pre-existing condition to the same body part. That's pretty typical. Uh, it also happens with some regularity that the claimant has a subsequent accident or injury. Oftentimes, it's uh, unrelated to the workplace loss, and they fail to disclose that to either their treating physician or to the independent medical evaluator. Um, so, not telling the examining physician about a subsequent injury or accident could also be grounds for fraud because certainly they could be concealing their actual medical condition. So, how do we uh, raise fraud or how do we bring this to the court's attention? Generally speaking, we should bring that to the court's attention one of two ways. The first way is to either bring a motion in court, and this would be uh, seeking dismissal and restitution based on the claimant's fraud. And the second way we do it is, typically if the, if the uh, fraud is discovered during the pendency of the case, would be to ask to move the case onto the trial calendar. And at that time, execute a pretrial memorandum, which is often called the green sheet, that's the colloquial for it, uh, and in that pretrial memorandum, raise fraud as an affirmative defense. Now, I'm going to talk uh, in a few more slides from now about exactly what I put into the pretrial memorandum. But please understand that in this jurisdiction, in New Jersey, every case that goes for trial is supposed to have a pretrial memorandum completed. And this is essentially just a big piece of paper that lays out for the judge of compensation all of the basic biographical facts about the claimant, um, the stipulated facts, which could include things like the stipulated average weekly wage and date of loss. And then the parties have to list all of their witnesses on the pretrial memorandum. And so really it's a shorthand way of the parties coming together and having a conference in which they explain to the court the proofs they intend on producing at trial. Now we call it the green sheet because uh, in the old days when these were filled out by hand, they were filled out on a green piece of paper uh, that was a carbon paper uh, and then the, the parties would each take uh, their piece of green paper back with them. And we would know because uh, I've been at this for 21 years, that if your case had been green sheeted, it was going to go for a testimony or trial proceedings at the next court listing. Uh, and so the colloquial for this is completing the green sheet. And that is really a shorthand way of the parties saying to each other, hey, we're ready for trial. And again, we'd have to list fraud as one of the issues that we were raising at trial. A very common um, scenario is the claimant exaggerating their condition, right? And I actually think that this is the most common type of fraud that we uh, see. Uh, this is obviously a concealment of a material fact, and again, the most common thing. And this is where the claimant just never gets any better, where their condition uh, only grows worse over time, and in which they are misleading their physician by failing to either disclose prior injuries or failing to disclose their actual medical condition, which of course, is supposed to be getting better with the passage of time and with the application of additional medical science. Uh, in these cases where the claimant is concealing their actual physical condition or functional capacity, generally speaking, we're gonna be having some type of, usually it's covert surveillance evidence that's going to uh, base our allegation of fraud upon. It's the situation where the claimant is, you know, going to the doctor and telling the doctor they can barely move, and we've got this surveillance video which shows that they are able to jump on a trampoline and go to the gym and have a great day. 
So what do we do when we think this is occurring? Well, uh, we raise this by way of filing a motion to suspend benefits. Um, and essentially we'd be saying, look, this person's um, misleading their physician, benefits should be suspended, and the case dismissed. Uh, the second time you can raise that, and oftentimes this is discovered uh, when we're preparing for trial or obtaining covert surveillance and getting in readiness for trial, this should be put onto that pretrial memorandum or that green sheet. Raise it and submit it to the court as one of the basis uh, for the uh, dispute and the reason for trial testimony. Uh, a very common fraud and, and one that should be considered almost a per se fraud is where the claimant's actually working while they're receiving temporary total disability benefits. Uh, this is pure concealment of an important fact, which is their actual work activity or actual work ability, which leads to us paying unnecessary temporary total disability benefits. It's a pure fraud. So what do we do? We file a motion to suspend benefits. That's going to lead to a trial on that motion. If the case is ready for trial, meaning all permanency reports have been completed and you're ready to go, this absolutely must be raised on the pretrial memorandum so that you're preserving that, argu that argument for trial. Next, what about the miraculous recovery? Now, and this is pretty common as well. Uh, this is where we uh, discover that the claimant's able to do volunteer activities uh, or engage in sporting events. Uh, while their physician is saying, and usually it's their IME or their expert physician is saying that they have some very significant permanent residual disability. Again, a motion should be filed, and if the case is already in trial posture, this should be raised at the pretrial memorandum. So let's talk about applying this stuff now. Let's talk about my actual tactics and how we impact uh, an actual workers' compensation case. Well, first, um, we should be raising fraud to leverage and create uh, that momentum towards settlement of a matter. Raising fraud is a powerful tool in your New Jersey toolbox, and that's because not only are their current benefits subject to being cut off if we have found to have misled their treating doctor or our expert or even the court, they also could be subject to restitution, meaning paying us back for everything that we've already paid them. Now, this is extraordinarily rare, and I haven't come up with any case law which shows a judge actually implementing restitution in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. But it's a wonderful thing to threaten. And this should certainly lead to a tactical leverage position where at least you can start to push the case towards a lump sum dismissal or a voluntary dismissal of the case. Uh, so if the uh, proofs are strong, you should be, of course, leveraging towards a complete and total dismissal. But if the proofs are weak, maybe you're thinking this will give me some impact and some leverage towards a lump sum Section 20 dismissal settlement. Now, thinking how this actually applies means we need to understand a little bit about the trial strategy. Remember that in New Jersey, the order of proofs is set by court rule. Um, so the administrative code is the court rule for the New Jersey workers' compensation courts. And those codes state that the first person to testify in a case is always the petitioner or the claimant. What's good about our fraud statute in the uh, rules is that we do not have to reveal our proofs of fraud until after the petitioner testifies. So when they're testifying in furtherance of their case, they're actually in the dark about what evidence we have. We absolutely do not have to provide the other side with any video we've obtained, reports of investigators, or any documents 
until after the petitioner's lay witnesses have completely testified, and typically that's only going to be the, um, the petitioner themselves. So again, you're keeping these things in your back pocket and you're able to deploy them at the time that best suits your case. Um, evidence of any concealment can also be utilized in rebuttal. So in other words, if you've moved through the order of proofs, and the standard order of proofs would be that the petitioner testifies first, then any of their lay witnesses, and then any respondent or employer witnesses would testify, and then you'd move to medical proofs with the petitioner's expert testifying, and then the respondent's expert testifying. Even if you've been through the entire case and have later discovered fraud, which has happened in cases we've defended, you're able to put the claimant back on the stand and raise fraud in rebuttal to some of the statements or proofs that have been submitted by the claimant. However, I don't recommend that. Uh, there is some jeopardy to uh, producing uh, proofs as rebuttal proofs instead of producing them, for example, during your cross-examination of the claimant uh, or immediately after the petitioner testifies. There could be some grounds for the judge of compensation to uh, exclude those proofs if they come too late in the case. Now, that's your trial strategy, but what you're really seeking is a dismissal with prejudice. And remember that this motion to dismiss based on fraud can be filed at any time and in any case as soon as you have any proffer or anything to support the motion. Uh, remember, though, that once you file that motion versus surprising the claimant at trial with uh, uh, proofs of their fraud, you're going to likely lose the element of surprise. And as soon as that motion's filed, the petitioner will have the opportunity to prepare for their testimony. But I've already told you that when we're going to trial in cases, we have to reveal um, or we have to assert fraud as one of our grounds for the trial or for the judge to determine. And so this gets into my best practices. The rule requires disclosure on that pretrial memorandum. And here's the, an example of the rule, and this is coming from New Jersey Administrative Code, uh, subsection 12-235-3.9a. That's the rule that I'm quoting here. And it says that the pretrial memorandum must be executed, okay? The, the court rule says shall be executed. So if you're going to trial and you're not executing the green sheet or pretrial memorandum, something's going wrong and you should ask your counsel why they're doing that. But it does say that if there any party intends to utilize videos or electronic media, including surveillance tapes, they have to indicate if that media will be used at trial and identify a witness who will authenticate and testify concerning it. And that should be placed in the other witness section of the pretrial memorandum. So that's right in the rule, right? So what I do to preserve the right to raise fraud and to preserve the uh, surprise test element is I think it's best practice on every single green sheet that we execute, whether we're going to produce this evidence or not, to add the following sentence, quote, the respondent, and again, that's my client, reserves the right to provide testimony or documentary evidence to refute the claims of the petitioner and or establish commission of fraud as defined by the statute and specifically reserves the right to obtain and or produce such evidence after the petitioner testifies as per Gross versus Neptune, close quote. And then on every single green sheet, I always add in a couple additional employer witnesses. I retain the ability to name them later without naming them directly on the pretrial memorandum. Now, I do this for two reasons. And the first is, hey, uh, there's cases that have been ready to go to trial, and we were suspicious that the claimant was a fraud, but we didn't yet have our proofs in order. And so I'm just saving 
the opportunity for us to present those proofs later. But I'm also kind of bluffing on every one of these green sheets because on every green sheet, I'm reserving my right to raise fraud. And in many cases, we don't actually have any proofs of fraud, but we're preserving that right to bring it. Now, the situation also occurs where the claimant creates uh, fraud or commits fraud during the trial. For example, they testify falsely. And they're testifying and you know that they're lying uh, or we think, wait, that doesn't, that conflicts with something else in the record or we've got some contradictory proofs that we could bring in that dispute their version of events or their claims they're making. The best practice at that point is to reserve the opportunity to present rebuttal witnesses and to raise fraud at that time. Generally, the court will allow the petitioner to return to court and testify again to address uh, after testimony acquired evidence. Now, I've got a great example of this. Um, there's a case in which the claimant was testifying and testified falsely that he was no longer involved in horse racing. He had been, as a hobby, um, he had been raising horses. The case is called Dubrell versus Maplecrest Auto Group, and it was decided by the Appellate Division in 2012. And in that case, he testified falsely that he was no longer able to uh, raise horses and participate in horse racing, harness horse racing, which was his hobby. Uh, the uh, adjuster for the insurance company actually knew a thing or two about horse racing and said, wait a second, I think if we look through the horse racing newspapers, because there's newspapers for people who follow this and gamble and bet on horses, uh, I bet you we'll find this person's name in there. And, he, and, and they did. And they went through the horse racing uh, scores and they found his name as jockeying horses for harness racing while he claimed to be too disabled to work and in direct refutation of what he testified, which was that he wasn't able to participate in horse racing anymore. And again, that was able to be brought into the case by way of rebuttal testimony. And the judge uh, took judicial notice of the horse racing scores, which had been printed in the newspaper and found that as the basis to find that the claimant Dubrell in that case had committed fraud. So even fraud that occurs during a trial can still be addressed. And if you've got cases out there where the claimants testified and you think, wait a second, I wish I had raised fraud, you can, and you can even raise fraud after they've testified. But all of this, unfortunately, will be subject to judicial discretion. Remember that the judge is given broad discretion in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. And the provision that provides for a fraud, uh, either denial of further benefits or restitution and dismissal of a case states that the court uh, is, you know, has this broad discretion and the, the judge of compensation can still say, well, wait a second, um, yes, they were malingering or yes, they were exaggerating their condition, but I don't think it rises to the level of fraud. Please understand that most appellate courts are going to be granting deference to the judge's findings as to credibility and or fraud. And so that's the reason why I think there's so little useful case law in this respect. How do we help employers? Um, as attorneys, what are we doing to make sure that fraudulent behavior is addressed? Well, first thing is, look, we've got to use our uh, experience and sort of our, our nose to tell you like, hey, these things aren't adding up. Um, I think client that we should be doing some investigation. We should be looking into this person's behavior. We should be considering covert surveillance. Next, we should help our clients by directing investigators as to what to look for and when to look for it. And remember, adjusters and examiners, you control the medical in these cases. So that's a great opportunity 
to direct surveillance. And what I mean by that is you know when their medical appointments are going to be made because you're making their medical appointments. And so for that reason, that's an, a wonderful opportunity to get some covert surveillance of the claimant. And certainly, um, you know, other opportunities would include things like their independent medical examination. I also think you can help the defense by making sure that we're getting ISO reports uh, for every case. Now, I think this is a standard of care that all of our clients are really living up to. We are getting ISO reports, prior claims history, claims index bureau reports very regularly. But remember, during the pendency of the case, those should be run again and again. Probably once a year, a new ISO report should be run on each claimant. And the reason for that is they have, these people tend to be professional plaintiffs, they tend to be very unlucky, and they, they seem to have lots and lots of accidents. So it's very useful for us to discover that they've had a new accident, maybe working for a subsequent employer or maybe in a non-work-related capacity that we can then rely upon in court to challenge their credibility. The last part I want to mention is that uh, fraud allegations can be retracted or abandoned. So raising fraud doesn't mean you end up getting stuck with a fraud case. You can absolutely take that moment to raise fraud um, do your investigation, and then if you discover later that, hey, fraud is not uh, very uh, likely in this case, um, then you can always drop it, and there's really no penalty for bringing it and dropping it. Okay, okay, let's uh, go over to the questions. I don't see any yet, but if there's anybody out there with some questions, I'd love to answer them about this topic. Uh, we do have a good number of people in the room um, listening to this. And I know this is a little bit of a different format, but this is such an exciting topic and such a fun topic. And it's one that's not really talked about a lot in New Jersey. In fact, I got a call this week from a client who said, how come nobody talks about fraud in New Jersey? And you know, I want to address that. First, um, the fraud statute, I know it's, it's 24 years old, but that's pretty new in terms of the New Jersey Workers' Compensation Act, which really hasn't been uh, substantially updated since 1979, so that's one reason. The second reason is a lot of attorneys don't know that you can raise fraud in New Jersey and how to tactically do it or what the best practices are. And the third reason is that New Jersey has this very much compromise-oriented, very old-school type structure where attorneys don't really want to raise issues that they're not certain that they can prevail on. I think that's very stale thinking and not uh, strong advocacy. I think our clients uh, in New Jersey are subjected to a relatively indifferent and sometimes hostile court system, and they don't want to be taken advantage of. You should not be taken advantage of in your New Jersey workers' compensation cases. Fraud is absolutely a viable ground for seeking dismissal or at least leveraging towards a more favorable settlement in a New Jersey workers' compensation case. All right, so I'm going to check back in on the questions tab. I'm seeing if we have any questions. Still now. All right. Um, thanks for joining us today. I hope this was useful for people. And again, it was fun to present this topic, which obviously, you know, I love. I love raising fraud. I've got a number of cases right now before the Division of Workers' Compensation in New Jersey where I'm personally raising fraud. Uh, I've seen some really strange things that um, need to be addressed. And this is really the way to hold the petitioner to their proofs and make sure that our clients are not getting taken advantage of. All right. Have a great day and a great rest of your week, everybody. See you soon.